Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this special series on the four principal commitments of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. On today's episode, we'll be taking a look at his first commitment, commitment to the promotion of human values. Now, what exactly does human values mean? Well, in just a moment, we'll hear a conversation between our ICT president, Tencho Gatso, and an acclaimed neuroscientist who'll help explain it to us. But first, let's hear the words of the Dalai Lama himself. Number one commitment, promotion of human value in order to create better world, more compassionate world, peaceful world. For that, technology, uh, economy, uh, is not the ultimate sort of source of peace. Real source of peace is inner peace. Now that we've heard the words of His Holiness, let's go deeper with our special guest for today's Tibet Talk, Dr. Richard Davidson. Richie is the founder and director of the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A neuroscientist, he's best known for his groundbreaking work studying emotion and the brain. And as a longtime friend and confidant of His Holiness, he's a highly sought after expert and speaker, and we are very fortunate to have him on today's Tibet Talk. Recently, Dr. Davidson spoke with ICT President Tencho Gatso. Let's hear their conversation now. Professor Davidson, it's an honor for us to have you uh, on the show today. Thank you for making time uh, to join us here. Thank you so much for having me, and it's uh, an equally an honor for me to be here with you. And thank you for all the good work that you do. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And ICT, I think uh, one of our uh, focuses, uh, most of our members come to uh, our organization because of a deep connection to His Holiness. And so this time, as His Holiness uh, turned 88, we thought we would do this series of conversations on His Holiness's four principal commitments. So with that, we are grateful for you to join us to speak about his first principal commitment, which His Holiness says that as a human being, he is concerned with encouraging people to be happy and advocating the cultivation of warm-heartedness and human values uh, such as compassion, forgiveness, tolerance. And as a scientist, can you tell us how you understand this principle? Yes. So uh, thank you for that good and also very important question. And just a little background, I first met His Holiness in 1992. And at the very first time I met him, that was before any scientific research had been conducted on compassion or forgiveness, gratitude. It was really in the very early days. And His Holiness asked me a very simple and innocent question. And he said, why can't we use the same tools of modern science that we use to study things like depression and anxiety 
and mm-hmm. stress and use those tools to study qualities like kindness and like mm-hmm. compassion. And that was the beginning. And I did not have a good answer for His Holiness on that day in 1992, other than that it's hard, but you know, it was hard when we first began to study those other kinds of challenges. And uh, and so since that time in 1992, I made a commitment to orient our work uh, mm-hmm. to these positive qualities. And uh, it really has been uh, amazing and wonderful to see this work flourish in so many different ways. So one of the really important insights that's that's come from modern science is that humans are really born to be kind. And that may sound a little strange to some people because of all the problems that we face today in the world and all the polarization mm-hmm. and the divisiveness. But yet research shows that when we really look at this carefully, it as infants, infants prefer to be around warm-hearted people than people who are not warm-hearted, uh, which any parent knows that. Uh, it makes complete sense. Uh, and also, people are fundamentally altruistic. Uh, these are part of our basic nature. Of course, we can learn to be selfish. We can learn to hate, but that's not our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to be kind and to be altruistic. And when we engage in training the mind, we're training qualities that we already have. We're nurturing them. We're strengthening them. Uh, And that's why we do the kind of mind training that His Holiness has advocated. And so this is such an important message for today's world and also It turns out from scientific research that when people begin even just a little bit of mind training to uh, train kindness and to train compassion, it actually doesn't take that much. Uh, They can begin to feel the benefit of this kind of training very quickly. And the reason for that, we believe, is because they're becoming more familiar with the basic nature of their mind. This is the way human beings are. It is part of our basic nature. And His Holiness always reminds us of that. He always reminds us that we have 8 billion people on the planet and where every person is fundamentally the same. We all share this same wish to be happy, to be free of suffering. And each of us has within us the the seeds of kindness. Yes. And so it's His Holiness always says this, you're right, but how did he take this? How did you kind of explain this to a person, to a scientist, in a scientific way? You said we did experiments or you, there are steps you can do. So how do you translate that? And how was his, how was your connection with His Holiness helpful in that? Yes. So first, in terms of uh, the influence of His Holiness, it, really cannot be overestimated. It was huge. His Holiness really inspired us to do this work. He convinced us that that it was really important for the world and that it was really doable, that, that there, there, was, there was really something there that science needed to discover 
And it's a very different approach to human nature than the one that I was taught when I was a student of psychology and neuroscience. I was taught when I looked at people, I should try to discover what's wrong with them, you know, so we can help them ostensibly. But the framework that we've now adopted, inspired by His Holiness, is we can now look at people and try to figure out what's right with them. And it's a very different way of orienting toward people. And so you ask about the scientific research. Let me give you um, examples of a few different kinds of studies. One is with babies. And the reason babies are used is to discover whether something is there from the start that is really part of human nature. And so these are studies done with babies who are six months of age. And in some of these experiments, the babies were shown puppets that were playing together. And in one case, the puppets were very warm-hearted toward one another. In another case, they were very selfish. And um, the question was then asked, which interaction does a six-month-old baby prefer? Mm -hmm. And one way to know that is you can hold the puppets up to the baby and see which one it reaches for. And, you know, it turns out that the vast majority of babies reach for the warm-hearted puppet, not the Mm -hmm. puppet who is selfish. Uh, And it's very clear. And it's not like just a small statistical difference. The, you know, more than 90% of um, human infants show this kind of preference. Then when you move on to adults, there are a whole series of studies where people were, where the following was done. People came into the laboratory and they were assessed on their levels of well-being and happiness. They were then given a large sum of money, like um, say 100 US dollars, and they were told that everyone has things they've wanted to get for themselves, but you know they don't really, they can't really justify it. Here's a hundred dollars. Go out and spend this on yourself. Buy yourself whatever you've wanted to get within what you can pay for with this amount of money, and then come back to the lab at the end of the day. And the only constraint is that you only can buy stuff for yourself, not for anybody else. And then another group, randomly assigned, mm-hmm. came into the lab in the morning. They were given the same amount of money, and they were told, you can spend this money on gifts for other people, but you can't mm-hmm. spend any of this for yourself. So you might wish to buy gifts for people that you haven't been able to do. Here's money to do it, and that's what you should do, and then come back at the end of the day. And the question is, which group is happier? Mm-hmm. The group spends money on themselves or the group that spends money on others. And the, the findings are so clear. You know, it's it's just so dramatic that you're much happier when you spend money on others, not on yourself. Uh, and this is, you know, exactly what His Holiness is saying. So those are some of the kinds of studies that have been done in the scientific context that clearly show that kindness is something that is um, built in, if you will, that human beings prefer. And we get more happiness from being kind to others than if we're selfish. And the, you know, the findings from that kind of work are very, very clear. And this holiness, um, you know, has been always emphasizing the secular nature of this, because this innately, it is something that 
His Holiness has taken from his uh, Buddhist teachings and taken the essence of it and applied it in a very scientific way that has changed people's perspective of also looking at Buddhism and applying it um, to all these conversations on mind and life that he's had, which you have been part of also. Yes. And so I think that's a really important point. And what we would say is that, you know, kindness, uh, the human propensity for kindness is not something that belongs to Buddhism or to any other religion. It, it is, it's part of human nature. Uh, and in this sense, His Holiness, I think, is quite right. And His Holiness's view has been supported by scientific research in showing that this is really a characteristic of what it means to be. And then in terms of training the mind to be uh, more warm-hearted, how are those some of, you know, how are the techniques or what are, uh, what are some of the programs and things that you have been engaging with? Yes. Some of the um, methods for training the mind have come from the Buddhist tradition, although they have been presented in a way, uh, as His Holiness has requested, to be very secular. And so to give an example, a simple practice to train the mind for compassion involves visualizing uh, another person. It could be a person who is close to you and you can visualize a time in their life when they may have been having some difficulty. And then you cultivate the strong aspiration that they be relieved of that difficulty. And you can use a simple phrase that you say just in your mind, uh, a phrase such as, may you be uh, free of suffering and its causes, may you enjoy happiness and its causes, something simple of that sort. And it turns out that we've done those kinds of experiments. And if you do that for even a few minutes a day, for just two weeks, your brain actually changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we documented that in rigorous neuroscientific research. And so these kinds of findings tell us that it doesn't take much to begin to to change the brain by training the mind. Uh, The changes that we see are not just in the brain, but they also affect our experience and our behavior. And so we have shown that just doing this kind of simple practice for a few weeks um, results in people behaving with increased generosity and altruism on behavioral tasks that assess that, and that those changes in altruism are associated with the changes that we see in the brain. Um, And so, uh, and this is presented in a completely secular way with just a few minutes a day of training. And so this, to me, is a very hopeful finding in showing that it doesn't take much to train the brain by transforming the mind, uh, and this affects our experience and behavior in ways that are profound. So, you know, this is, um, and and this is, uh, as His Holiness also says, that uh, one of the surest routes to happiness is to be kind to others. Uh, And it turns out that when people do this simple kind of compassion practice, they show 
um, significant increases in their well-being. As His Holiness speaks about the hygiene of the mind and that even from a young age, children should be taught how to not just keep a healthy body, but to have a healthy mind and learn how to do that, that it should be part of modern education. Yes, and in fact, His Holiness's passion for education and for bringing this into education was really responsible for us developing a curriculum that we call the Kindness Curriculum. It's a curriculum that was inspired by His Holiness, and it's a curriculum for very young children who are in preschool, who are ages four and five years. And we've tested this curriculum in public schools in the United States, and we've demonstrated that kids who go through this curriculum behave more altruistically with their peers. They are more cooperative. They're better regulated in their emotions, and they actually earn better grades from their classroom teachers. And so this is something you know, I think really important. Uh, And we know from neuroscientific evidence that the brain exhibits increased plasticity in the early years of life. Scientists call this sensitive periods of development. Mm -hmm. And one of those sensitive periods of development is right around the onset of schooling between Mm -hmm. the ages of four and seven years of age. Mm -hmm. So we think it's a really important period to introduce this kind of training to children. Is this um, also the course that uh, at the Secular Ethical Emotional Learning at Emory University? It's um, it's similar. So these are similar curricula. This curriculum that I'm talking about is really designed just for preschool children. Um, And it is for anyone who might be interested, it it is freely available. Uh, Mm -hmm. Anyone can download it from our website at the Center for Healthy Minds. And right now, it's unfortunately only available in English and in Spanish. Uh, we would love for it to be translated into other languages. Thank you. And um, we can post a link uh, to that on this um, conversation at the bottom. Also, I wanted to ask you, you've, right way in the beginning, you did a lot of experiments with also Tibetan monks, what meditation did to the mind. That was something, a special project that His Holiness had encouraged you to take on. Can you share a little bit about those days? Yes, absolutely. So this is really from the early days of my relationship with His Holiness, and he encouraged us to test uh, some very long-term practitioners because these are people who have spent years training Mm -hmm. their mind. And, you know, if our measures didn't show something different in their brains, then, you know, we we very unlikely see something in more novice practitioners. So His Holiness encouraged us to begin with these very long-term practitioners. And we first tried to study yogis and monks who are living in the, on Baksu Mountain around Dharamsala, but that was unrealistic, and uh, many of them had really not had much contact with Western science, with the West really in general. And so His Holiness then encouraged us to... Um, I read about you with the big uh, machinery and backpacks going up to the hermits and everybody saying, no, no, no. Right. They all said, no, no, no. 
so and we didn't want to push it you know we really wanted to do this in a way which was at the highest ethical standards and so we then went and asked his holiness for advice and his holiness said well maybe tibetan meditation teachers who teach in the west and are more familiar with the west would be more willing to be uh, guinea pigs in a way and then that's when matthew ricard stepped up and he said he's happy to be for our audience can you matthew ricard is um yeah so matthew ricard is french by nationality he's been a tibetan buddhist monk since uh 1967 he also has a phd in molecular biology that he received from the Pasteur Institute in Paris which is a very prestigious institute and he worked for his phd with Francois Jacob who's a nobel laureate uh and so Mathieu came with really remarkable kinds of credentials and he said he'd be happy to be a guinea pig he understood the value of science and his holiness really encouraged him and uh, of course Mathieu is devoted to his holiness and would do anything his holiness told him to do and um so Matthew was the first long-term practitioner that came to our laboratory the second long-term practitioner was Mingyur Rinpoche and Mingyur Rinpoche has become a very well-known Tibetan uh meditation teacher and um uh, and so uh talks about the monkey mind Yes, talks about the monkey mind. We tested Matthew and Mingyur Rinpoche initially and we were, you know, just amazed because in both of them we saw dramatic differences in their brain that were just dramatic. You know, we'd never seen anything like that in our lives before as scientists. And we knew when we saw that that this is really going to be revolutionary. Can you explain in lay terms what you mean by dramatic differences? Yeah, so there is a certain when we measure brain electrical activity with electrodes on the head, they are they these uh waves oscillate. Mm-hmm. Uh and there is a particular frequency of oscillation that we call gamma oscillations, which is very high frequency. It's uh oscillations that are around 40 oscillations per second so it's quite fast now in normal people who have never trained their mind we see gamma oscillations but they're very very brief they last typically less than 1 second at a time and then there might be minutes that go by maybe even hours and then maybe another brief flicker of these gamma oscillations and what is gamma well gamma is a signal in the brain that is associated with a number of different things one of which is insight you can think of it as wisdom um where things really come together in a uh, novel way where we're really gaining new insight into some phenomena in the world in reality and these in most people are just really tiny flickers and what we saw in Matthew uh, Ricard and in Mingyur Rinpoche is that these oscillations were dramatic they were not just flickers but they lasted 
minutes, if not hours. And in fact, when we tested them when they were not meditating, mm-hmm. just their baseline state, they were filled with these gamma oscillations just in their baseline state. And uh, it, it honestly completely blew our mind because we actually thought initially that there must be some artifact in the way we were doing the recording because we had never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. We actually spent one year after mm-hmm. we tested the first four long-term practitioners doing all kinds of control experiments because we thought that there was some interference that was causing these signals that it wasn't real, but it turned out to be real. And this, we published our first paper that Mathieu Ricard himself was a co-author of on these long-term practitioners in 2004. And we published it in one of the most prestigious scientific journals in the world. And it was the first time that any paper on meditation had ever been published in this scientific journal. And that, you know, and, and it's now had thousands of citations and it, it really helped to open up the field. It helped to convince hard-nosed scientists that there was really something here. And so that was really an important milestone in research in this area. Then I want to also ask you, Dr. Davidson, I've heard of how this can, uh, can meditation also helps effect, have positively impact our responses to pain and discomfort or stress. And how, you know, can you talk about that? Certainly. So, um, as I'm sure your listeners all know, these mind training methods were developed thousands of years ago in the Buddhist tradition not to help relieve stress or relieve pain, but they really developed for awakening. However, uh, it turns out that scientific research shows that they can be useful in everyday life in reducing stress and in helping people to better cope with pain. Uh, And so we've done a number of research studies to examine this, including studies that look at the uh, the biochemical responses in the body to stress, as well as uh, how uh, meditation impacts our experience of pain. And on the issue of pain, this is something so important of a real practical nature because all of us experience pain at some point in our lives. I mean, this is just part of what it means to be a human. I mean, even His Holiness experiences pain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talked about the pain in his knees. Uh, and so what this scientific research shows is that the way, well, let me explain it in this way. One of the things that happens when we experience pain is we often have emotions in response to the experience of pain. We often are fearful of pain. And then when the pain is occurring, we often ruminate about it and it makes it worse. And what, and there's a specific system in the brain that is responsible for all this emotional elaboration on the pain. And what we see in long-term meditation practitioners is that there's a dramatic change in this part of the brain. And so they show a response to pain. It's not like they're zombies. They show a response but they don't show the lingering. They don't show uh, the rumination. They don't show the kind of perseveration 
these secondary emotional uh, reactions that make the pain so much worse. So it's not like they get rid of the pain, but they're, they change their relationship to the pain so that it can be, they can live with it. They can make friends with it in a way uh, that was very difficult before. I also heard, uh, as you were speaking, I was reminded, I was listening to a podcast of yours about a month ago, and um, you talked about an experiment where there was a meditation practitioner and a non, and you were doing these pain tests on them and how the reaction from the non-meditation person before the pain uh, was given to them, they already started showing the symptoms. So I thought that was <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, in that study, you're referring to another study um, where we were looking at the anticipation of pain. And if you tell a person that in 10 seconds, they're about to get something painful, in a non-meditator, their brain responds as if they were getting the pain right then. So it further magnifies the pain. In the long-term practitioners, there was nothing like that. They were showing no activation in the areas of the brain that are what we call pain responsive areas. It was just flat. Uh, and so their brains were behaving in a way that we've now come to see is a kind of picture of resilience where they're showing very little anticipation. And they have a, a very quick recovery after the pain goes off. So through these, um, uh, Dr. Davidson, through these experiments and these learnings, how, I mean, I think His Holiness also has been talking to individuals of different backgrounds, scientists, philosophers, readers, um, and how do you, how is it well known and what is the impact in uh, every day? I remember you were also saying at some point where in the 90s, people didn't really learn the word compassion, but now it's almost there everywhere. Um, do you see the, these connected? Yes. And so, you know, I think that's so important to um, be reminded of this. When I first began this work, when His Holiness was encouraging me, it was very, honestly, it was very lonely because there are very few people doing it. When we first began, there may be uh, three or four studies on meditation that had been done. Uh, you know, now there are thousands and it's heartening to see uh, how rapid a change it's been. Uh, and now we see their major sectors of society, including the workplace, education, healthcare, first responders like police and firefighters, all of those different groups are open to meditation now. Uh, and, you know, it really is because of His Holiness's extraordinary vision. He had the insight before any of us did that bringing science and Buddhism together was going to be beneficial for the world. Uh, and, you know, at the very beginning, we really, uh, none of us had that kind of vision. Uh, none of us could have anticipated this, but His Holiness was very confident about this um, and really strongly urged us to, to continue on this path. And what's remarkable is that in 30 years, in less than 30 years, really, it took about 20 years. And in 20 years, everything changed. 
you know, His Holiness turned out to be absolutely correct in his vision that bringing science and Buddhism together would really be of benefit to society in these ways. And now we see meditation and other forms of mind training being incorporated into so many different sectors. It's just, it's when I first began, it, it was unimaginable. Finally, looking ahead, how do you see the most significant challenges or opportunities in further promoting and integrating these values into society? Yeah, so His Holiness, whenever we're with him, reminds us that there are now 8 billion people on the planet, and we're all basically the same. Um, we all have the same capacity to flourish uh, and the same wish for happiness. And so our challenge today and where my passion really resides is how can we bring this to more people? And when you look at different kinds of surveys in at least Western countries throughout the world, what you see is that only about 15% of the population is actively doing something to train their own mind. Um, and it may be meditation, it may be, you know, it, when we consider this kind of loosely, they may be doing certain forms of yoga or other kinds of therapy to train their mind, but not more than 15% of the population is doing that. That leaves 85% of the population that's really not. And how can we reach those people? Many of those people don't even recognize that well-being can be nurtured. They don't recognize anything having to do with training the mind. Uh, and how can we reach those people? Because every, every human being has the capacity to flourish. And I would even go further and say that we, in the kind of position that we're in, we have a moral obligation to help as many people as possible. And this, I feel, comes directly from his own. This is why I feel I'm on the planet today is to do this work and to scale it in whatever ways we can. And um, one of the things I like to remind people of is when, when humans first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And I'll bet every listener and viewer brushes their teeth at least a couple of times a day. This is not part of our genome. This is something that we've all learned to do. It's something that we think is important to our personal physical hygiene. And what we're talking about, as His Holiness talks about it, this is something important for our personal mental hygiene. And if we can learn to brush our teeth, we can learn to train our mind. If we spent even, and this is what scientific research shows, if we spent even as short a time as we do brushing our teeth each day, training our mind, I have the conviction that this world would be a different place. And so I want to appeal to all the viewers uh, and listeners to please spread this word because the very future of humanity, I think, depends on That's what His Holiness says. Warm-heartedness begins from one person onwards and spreads, will lead to um, peace everywhere. Two weeks ago, I was in India and His Holiness, now 88, very healthy, and he says, I'm committed to serving for 
towards um, peace for the world and uh, all humanity. And his dedication uh, continues. Yeah, it's extraordinary and uh, so powerful for us. And thank you, Dr. Davidson, for all your work over these many years, right? From when you were a young student till now continuing serving and getting his illness's message to a wider audience as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's my thank honor to be with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and watching this episode of Tibet Talks. We'll be back next week with the second episode of the series, focusing on His Holiness's second principal commitment, a commitment to the promotion of religious harmony. You don't want to miss that, so make sure to check it out. But until then, as we always say on Tibet Talks, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Tujiche. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.